after vacation, when I've been gone for a few weeks, I sometimes feel like I could preach for days. But I'm not going to do that today. I know there's a time limit, don't worry. So I have a few things for you. First, I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, loving us so well. It is wonderful to tell our children that we have the privilege to go on vacation together, but that our church loves us enough to, to give us time to have that time together and to be able to just assure them that, unfortunately, not every person has that. Not every person has that around the world. Not every person who pastors a church has a church that cares enough to send them away so that we could be together, so thank you. While I'm away, it's always good for me, too, to sit under the preaching of God's Word. That's one of the reasons I was here last week, sitting front row, listening to Pastor Nick. Did an excellent job. If you weren't here for that sermon, I'd encourage you to go online, listen to Nick's sermon. It was an excellent exposition from Isaiah chapter 40 for us this past week. Uh, I was listening to a sermon, some, just like you. Sometimes you listen to sermons live. Sometimes you listen to them online. And the title of the sermon was, I Am Not the Christ, uh, it was a pastor preaching to pastors and those training for ministry. And it was one of the most important sermons that I think that I've listened to recently, just a, a reminder to me of my own limitations, that there are so many things that I'm just not good at as a pastor. I'm not the Christ. So many ways that you might need me or our elders to serve you that we are not able to do so just because we're finite and limited and lack gifting in some areas, uh, that we're not omnicompetent and omnipresent. We are not the Christ. Uh, that there might be ways that in your life you, you actually need us to help, and we are limited not only as elders but as a staff with interns and a part-time pastoral assistant because we are not the Christ. I say that to you because I know that you have received a lot of emails recently asking for help. You've received a ton of emails, you've heard announcements from them, and I know if your inbox is like my inbox, sometimes you just casually move those into the trash file, but I'm here to tell you that I am not the Christ, and we are not the Christ, and the church has literally just grown beyond our capability to do everything that needs to be done. We need your help. There are several things that we need help in. You've seen emails about that. You've heard announcements about that. Some of those are literally just simple things like standing at the door or helping on Wednesday night. But I'm here to tell you, members of this church, there are certain things that we just can't do if you don't help us. Not to burden you, not to make you feel bad, but to just simply say, we are trying to focus our attention on what our, is our primary responsibility. I cannot be good at everything. I'm not good at everything. I fail you all in many ways. There are things that I miss out on that I'd love to be at in your life because I am not the Christ. But we're gonna focus on prayer and ministry of the word and we need you to step into some areas of service. Now, you might be asking yourself, where do I step into? You can ask a deacon. If you're a deacon in the room, would you just stand up for me real quick? One of our deacons, stand up. They didn't know this was going to happen, but we need you to stand up. Raise your hand. If you're in the back, there's one right there, Chris Myers. We can still see you even though you're, I'm short too, Chris. It's all right. So they need your help. Go to one of them after today and say, hey, what can I do to help? Where, where can I serve members of this church? Find out how you might... Help us minister the gospel here in our church and to our community. And if you're not one of our members today, but you've been coming, we invite you as we always do. Join our church. All Christian life in the New Testament is local church life. There is no such thing as a Christian in the New Testament who's not invested in the context of their church. We invite you to join our church and join us in the work that we are doing here. We have a members-only policy for our members to serve. That's why we don't ask you if you're a guest or a regular attender or a non-member to help serve. We're so thankful that you desire it, but we want to say that is the burden of the people who have uniquely identified with this local body, which is why so many of you serve so faithfully in some areas. But there are a lot of you where we, we just need your help right now. We know that your life is busy. I've not met a person in all my years who's ever said, I'm not busy, I have so much time on my hand. Every person I meet is busy. We need your help. Step into those areas. Please serve with us. Because just as I was reminded this week, I am not the Christ. Second, many of you have been asking me questions. All of this is pre-sermon, by the way. Uh, so, uh, been asking me questions uh, about how do I read and interpret and apply the Bible. Uh, so what I did, what I like to do, is I bought some books. Uh, I have a couple copies uh, with me uh, today, and then I'll have some available at other times God, uh, covenant, God's Purpose for the World by Tom Schreiner. It's a little book. Uh, it's a wonderful book on covenant theology, on just how we understand the storyline of the Bible as a whole. 
I would invite a few of you, if you would like to read this book, I think I have two copies with me uh, this morning, come speak to me. This is just a wonderful way to say, how do I understand the broader structure of the Bible, what its message is, so that I can read it and apply it for my life, because all of you are asking the same question Christians throughout all ages are asking. What is the relevance of the Old Testament for my life as a New Testament Christian, and how do I apply all of these various different genres of Scripture to my life now here in the 21st century? I have some of these books, but perhaps you're saying, I don't have time to read that right now. We printed 30 chapters. Uh, it's three different chapters, 10 copies each. They're going to be at the Connection Center after the service. You can go get one of those chapters. They're all relevant. They're all helpful, but you could just take one and commit yourself to one chapter. If you like that chapter, come back and ask for one of the other ones, or you could just go buy the entirety of the book that they come from as well. They don't come from this book. Wanted to be able to try to put some material in your hand so that you might be able to read the Bible and understand its broader storyline and how to apply it to your life. Tom has been here. He's preached for us. He's a faithful uh, minister of the gospel. He's a faithful seminary professor, so I recommend this book. The chapters will be at the Connection Center. If you want one of these, come speak with me. If you want one of those, you can just go and take one. We'd love for you to have a copy of those so that you can read and understand the Bible. Now, Speaking of the Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word with me. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, or as Tim Grins did, to the right of him by asking somebody else. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own. So you can just take that home with you. That is your Bible now. We'd love for you to be able to have that and read that. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. And right before I read, I just want to say one final thing. I am very aware, as I've prayed for all of you and for this moment right now, that there are just going to be words in this passage today that are trigger words for people in this room. It is my prayer that right now we would focus our attention on God's word and not the things that might trigger us to think of all kinds of other areas, and with the help of the Spirit, come to a greater understanding and clarity of what God is trying to say to us in Christ. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, the preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself was here speaking to us today. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice... Even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's pray. Father, we confess and do not deny that your Son, our Lord Jesus, is the Christ. And this word reveals Him to us. Him and what He has done for us and for our salvation. So we pray that you would help us now in this moment to behold wonderful and beautiful things from your law, that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts, 
that you would help us to see and help us to hear so that we might apply the Scripture to our life and grow in knowledge and grace and faith as we look forward to the eternal day of God that is drawing near. And God, for all believers in this room, together we pray that right now in this moment, if there are some who are here with us and hear these words, those read and those coming from my mouth in this moment, that they would not hear me, that they would hear the voice of the Galilean, that you would soften their hearts and cause them to be born again by their trust in Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. And we ask all of this in his great name. Amen. The problem of evil, of injustice, of the sufferings of the innocent, of bad things happening to good people is the oldest of all puzzles and the strongest of all arguments against the belief in the goodness of God and the goodness of life. The author of Ecclesiastes sees this. So later in this same book, he writes in chapter 8, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. 20 centuries has not solved this problem, nor will 20 more. Time does not solve evil or heal all pain. The preacher saw that nothing under the sun does. Notice first what is observed. Look again with me in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now drop down to chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. From chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 16, what the preacher sees structures this portion of the book. Just follow along with me in the text. If you like to underline in your Bible, you can just underline all of the references to I saw. Verse 16 of chapter 3, moreover, I saw. Chapter 3, verse 22, so I saw. Chapter 4, verse 1, again, I saw. Chapter 4, verse 4, then I saw. Chapter 4, verse 7, again, I saw. Chapter 4, verse 15, I saw. The preacher is looking out, but where is the preacher looking as he observes everything that is taking place? Both chapter 3, verse 16 and chapter 4, verse 1 tell us. He's looking under the sun. As we've seen already in this portion of our, up to this point in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun is just a poetic way for the preacher to describe everywhere on earth, this side of eternity where life is lived. And what specifically does the preacher see as he looks out and observes the realities of life? Injustice. Chapter 3, verse 16. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And oppression. Chapter 4, verse 1. All the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. From the very beginning of the book, while the preacher has told us that he is in pursuit of profit and gain and benefit, and the preacher looks out at life, and he sees what it is, not what he wants it to be, but he sees what it is, And he sees inequality and cruelty as he's pursuing profit and benefit and gain. And he finds inequality and cruelty in the most unlikely of places. Chapter 3, verse 16, in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness. The very places that people most need to receive justice 
turn out to be the locus of unfairness. In her book, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee tells the story of a black man falsely accused of sexually assaulting a white woman in a small southern town during the Depression era. The trial of that man, Tom Robinson, frames the entire book and is viewed primarily through the lens of two children, Scout and her older brother, Jim, whose father, Atticus, is actually the defendant's lawyer. At one point, near the end of the book, the children sneak into the courtroom to see their father at work and all of the proceedings for themselves, and they find that the evidence is clearly with the accused. The accusations that they've been hearing through the rumor mill in town are false. All of the charges brought against the man are baseless, and it's obvious, even to children. As they look on from the balcony, just looking down at the court proceedings below them, they're waiting on the verdict from Jim, the older brother, expects the jury to return from their deliberations and bring justice. He has no reason to believe that institutions put there for your protection are not always benevolent. He has no reason to believe that they will not always validate what is obviously right. But when Judge Taylor is polling the jury, juror after juror begins to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. And as they did, Scout looked over at Jim. His hands were white from gripping the balcony rail, and his shoulders jerked as if each guilty was a separate stab between them. Afterwards, the children made their way to their father through the cheerful crowd in the town square. Jim's face was streaked with angry tears. It ain't right, he muttered the whole way to the corner where they found their father Atticus waiting. It ain't right, Atticus, said Jim. No, son, it's not right. How could they? How could they do it? I don't know, but they did it. They've done it before, and they did it tonight, and they'll do it again, and when they do... Seems that only children weep. The entire scene is a breathtaking example of a child coming to terms with the truth about the world, about the way that it is. Not the way that he wants it to be or the way that he has pretended that it is. And what he sees when he finally looks at the world the way that it is, is he sees inequality and cruelty. The powerful are not always just. Some lives are valued more highly than others by those in power with the power to actually claim rights to supremacy. And in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. That there actually are oppressions that take place under the sun. The problem of injustice and oppression is too poignant to be left as a mere illustration because, as Craig Bartholomew notes, the problem of injustice and oppression remains as relevant today as ever in the 21st century because it takes so many different forms. Citing reports from the United Nations Children Emergency Fund, Bartholomew highlights that approximately 218 million children ages 5 to 17 work, with about 126 million working in hazardous situations such as mines with chemicals and pesticides in agricultural settings or with dangerous machinery. They are everywhere, they're just invisible. Toiling as domestic servants in homes, laboring behind the walls of workshops hidden from view and plantations. Millions of little girls are sold as domestic servants and are unpaid as house help, and they are especially vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. Roughly 1.2 million children are trafficked, 5.7 million are forced into debt bondage and other forms of slavery, 2 million are trapped in prostitution and pornography, with another 300,000 coerced to participate in armed conflict around the globe. Add to this all of the oppression of women that we have become aware of in the 21st century, the oppression of blacks in apartheid South Africa, Darfur, Rwanda, the killing fields in Cambodia, the practice of torture, economic inequality, and abortion, just to name a few things. And it is hard not to feel the weight and anguish of the preacher because he looks out on the world the way that it is. And he sees the oppressed across all ages, 
It's not just one group of people from one country. And then notes, in chapter 4, verse 1, they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power. It forces us to ask, will there ever be a time for justice? And friends, I'm here to tell you what you already know to be true. The modern world has no meaningful answer to that question. Though the question is as big as a hidden elephant. But how do you hide an elephant? As Peter Kreft observed, diversion. The easiest way to hide an elephant is by thousands of little mice that take your attention away from it. Friends, our world is full of thousands upon thousands of little things which keep our eyes diverted from the pain and the sadness and the sorrow and the brokenness and the hurting of people that is going on right in front of us. We are kept so busy that we have no time to observe what the preacher observes about the world or see, because if we're honest, it would just simply be too painful to notice it. We don't really want to look at it. Even the most concerned among us pay very careful attention to very little. But to read about the tears of the oppressed, as one of our members helped me see this week, and how they had no comfort for them in the midst of power being abused by their oppressors should actually stir up longings for it to be made right and longings for the oppressed to experience healing. It is good and right for people, for the church, to have compassion on the oppressed. And this compassion should image the compassion of Jesus Christ in Matthew's Gospel. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And if you are aware of Matthew's Gospel, you know who they are harassed by the very people who are put in power to help them, to teach them, the scribes, the Pharisees, the law-abiding citizens. It should be a compassion that isn't theoretical, but actually moves us to action like it moved Jesus to action. But in all of our desire for it to be made right, we have to remember what verse 16 of chapter 3 says in Ecclesiastes. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Friends, just simply put, earthly justice does not even begin to compare with God's justice. There is justice that we can give as humans, but it is tainted by sin. It is unlike the perfect God of justice. Wickedness exists even in the midst of the best versions of our justice and righteousness that we try to offer to other people. And so in our desire to see justice done to the oppressed, we have to remember that the ultimate comforter and the perfect advocate that absolutely every person on planet Earth needs is Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one will ever comfort them the way that the tears of that advocate Jesus Christ can and does. And as true for us, so it is true for absolutely every individual. Only God can wipe away their tears when they dwell with Him forever. And eternity with God is only possible with Jesus Christ as our personal advocate. This is why the Apostle John says, in Christ by repentance and faith, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is the great need of every person on planet earth. That is, his substitutionary death on the cross appeased the wrath of God for our sins, wrath that we all deserve, and now by repentance from sin, turning away from it, and faith in him, we actually can draw near to God. Friends, do you believe that you're a sinner? The Bible tells you that you are whether you believe it or not. Have you repented of your sins and asked God to forgive you of it? The Bible tells you that you must. If you would answer yes to both of those questions, I would ask you, what is different about your life now? If there is no discernible difference about your life after you have trusted in Christ from before you trusted in Christ, 
then have you really trusted in Christ? You can be concerned about justice. You can be concerned about repentance. You can attend every service here. You can go to every philanthropic event in our community. But if there is nothing different about your life because of your profession and faith in Jesus Christ, has your life really changed because of your repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ? And brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you would say no, what prevents you today from coming to Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus Christ and asking God for the forgiveness of sins that only comes in Jesus Christ? Week in and week out, we invite you to come to Jesus Christ. He invites everyone who is weary and heavy laden and worn down from seeing or personally experiencing the injustice and oppressions of this world to cast all of their sorrows upon him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He will provide rest from your souls and he will not discriminate. If you come to him, he will freely welcome you. Brothers and sisters, that is the invitation of the gospel. Come to Christ, trust in Christ, believe in Christ. What the preacher observed pointed him forward. Notice second what is coming. Look in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust, all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Like Jesus, the preacher sees that we will always have the poor and the oppressed with us. And that actually drives him inward in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, I said in my heart. His observations make him contemplative. He starts to talk to himself as he reflects on what he has seen taking place in the world around him. And what does he say to himself? Verse 17, God will judge. In verse 18, God is testing. He actually begins by reminding himself of his own sermon. In verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. If chapter 3, verse 1, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, then chapter 3, verse 17, there must also be a time for justice, no matter how bleak things may look right now. The fact that everything on earth is seasonal actually promises us an end to the long winter of injustice and oppression, the preacher observes. And by calling our attention to this, the preacher is actually telling us to hope in God. As one pastor said, rather than simply getting angry or being sad about all of the oppressions we see in the world, the preacher tells us we can trust God to make things right in the end. He will judge. It may look like it's gone unnoticed, but he will judge. It may be unfair. He will judge. It may be wrong and obviously wrong. He will judge. Believers in Christ, do you believe that? Does your life reflect that you actually believe that? Do your words Verbal, typed, shared with somebody through some social media platform or sent in the form of a text message. Reflect that you believe that he will judge. Trusting God's justice does not mean that we should not pursue justice in this life under the sun. Friends, depending on our place in society and the privileges that we enjoy and the spheres of influence that we have and our God-given authority and the opportunities that each one of us have that are different than each other, it is our duty to fight against oppression in the church and in the wider world. We should be the first people to stand up for what is wrong and say, that's wrong. 
So often, people on every side of the aisle just simply want Christians to say, that's obviously wrong. It shouldn't happen like that. It should never be easy to kill a baby. It should never be easy to gun a man down in the street. It should never be easy to take advantage of somebody and traffic them around the states or around the globe. It should never be easy. So often we are the slowest people to do it, or we say it in the most hateful ways and undermine the very gospel that we say that we love. Trusting God's justice does not mean that we don't have a duty or a responsibility to the wider world, that we shouldn't be paying attention to the church around us. Brothers and sisters, we want to protect people in the church. That's part of the reason we have a children's protection policy. We want to protect them because we are not naive to think that vulnerable people are vulnerable. But as we've already seen, even our best efforts won't bring an end to injustice and oppression. There is always going to be violence and inequality. There will always be abuses of power in business and government and unfortunately and tragically churches and even law enforcement. But in all situations that we do not have the power or the authority or the wisdom to resolve, the preacher reminds us that God will see to it that justice is done. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. The hope of the believer is in the chief justice, Jesus Christ. Because God has promised that a day is coming sooner than we might think, that he will judge the righteous and the wicked, and he will render a final verdict for the deeds done in the body. The wicked will be punished forever. The righteous will be eternally comforted by the Spirit of God. The preacher goes on to say in this very same book, in chapter 12, verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every, beloved, pay attention, with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Brothers and sisters, because Jesus Christ will bring final justice, we actually live in hope for an expectation of his return. And whenever we see injustice, acts of oppression that we are powerless to prevent or control, we should be the first of, of all people, the most quick to pray for justice to come, to be revealed sooner rather than later, because as the apostle teaches us, sometimes all we can do is cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? But all of that, that type of posture and prayer takes faith in God's promises, even when we can't see them, and trust in God's timing, even when we don't like it. And if we're honest, and I pray that you'd be honest today, it is hard for us to trust in God's promises when they seem far off. That's true in justice. Brothers and sisters, that's true in the sufferings of your own life, whatever it is today. It is hard to believe in God's goodness when what you long for, that is a good thing, seems so far away and unattainable. It is hard to trust in God's timing when it has been a long time coming. It's not lost to me that some of you have prayed some prayers for weeks, months, years, decades of your life. Let us encourage one another with the words of the prophet Habakkuk who said, If it seems slow, wait for it. And it will surely come. It will not delay. But even as I read that, it's not lost to me that some of you begin to think, then why is it delayed? If it won't delay, why is it delayed? Why is the present not the proper time for it? To those questions, verse 18 gives us the typically abrasive answer that we have come to appreciate in our study of Ecclesiastes. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. The preacher tells us, tells himself and us, that our present existence is a proving ground, a test. Not simply in the sense of something that we just pass or fail, but in the sense of something that demonstrates what or perhaps in whom we really trust. And who do you trust? The preacher tells us that one of life's purposes is to examine us 
and ultimately to reveal that we are merely animals. It's not a comment on our biology, but on our destiny. Look what he says in verse 19. For what happens to the children of man, this is the purpose of verse 18. He's grounding what he said. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. A man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. Where is that? The grave. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. Death renders pointless the preacher's quest of gain and profit and benefit in this life. And in the inevitability of death is the great equalizer for the preacher, reminding him and us that we are all but animals. We are all but created things. Like animals, we breathe. And like animals, a day will come when we stop breathing. And if everyone dies, just like the beasts, then what is the point after all? What's the point of the goodness of Christ in a world of constant pain in which we all just die like a dog? If life is is brief in a world this painful, what's the point? Aren't we all just better off dead? What he observed, what is coming, notice third, what is concluded. Look in verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now drop down to chapter 4, verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The preacher's observations, injustice and oppression, point him forward to what is coming, judgment and death, and lead him to two conclusions. Verse 22 of chapter 3, man should rejoice in his work. And chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, The dead and unborn are more fortunate than the living. Friends, does that sound too bleak for you in the midst of a Christian sermon? Can someone who is a Christian actually say something like this? How can any Christian rejoice in their work when there is so much wrong with the world? And how can any Christian despair so much in this life that they find no good thing in it. Unless we have the assurance of eternal life, finding joy in our everyday work will never give us lasting satisfaction. We'll see that as we continue in our study of Ecclesiastes, but you already know that to be true in the rat race that is your life. The grind day in and day out, the constant pressures that you face Morning to the next morning, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade and decade in and out. We see there is no joy in those things apart from trust in everlasting life. So after his exhortation to us in chapter 3, verse 22, the preacher spirals back into despair as he envies the dead and the unborn in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. But in so doing, he actually conveys his point to us. And it's a appropriate for us to take a step back once again and see the preacher has been writing to us from the very beginning, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we see him. He is on a quest for profit, for gain, for benefit in a world of injustice and oppression. And it is a book about living the good life in a world of pain and sorrow and loss. It is a book that calls us to actually stare long enough and hard enough at the world the way that it is to dispel the illusion that this world could ever become, in any age, in any place, a utopia for people. Wisdom won't make it a utopia, chapter 1. Knowledge won't make it a utopia, chapter 1. Pleasure won't make it a utopia, chapter 2. Industry and hard work won't make it a utopia, chapter 3 and chapter 2. 
As one pastor said, the preacher in Ecclesiastes teaches us that to hope and what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive under the sun. And in this way, Ecclesiastes guides us to look for the land of the living in the land of the dying. Anyone who wants to know what will happen after death should ask Jesus and look to the Gospels because He has been to death, through death, and is now on the other side. Friends, when Jesus was brought to the place of justice, there was no justice for Him at all. There was no one to speak in his defense. People falsely accused him. There was no one to rescue him from the deadly restraints and the cross. There was no one to comfort him. Everyone abandoned him when he was just simply laid in the dust after death. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ did not stay dead. And on the third day, the Bible assures us that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His body is resurrected. His spirit has ascended into immortal glory. In these words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this, Christ lives. The trunk of the cross becomes the wood of life. And now in the midst of the world, on the accursed ground itself, Life is raised up new. In the center of the world, from the wood of the cross, the fountains of life spring forth. And they are pointed to this morning in these elements. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the free gift of God secured for all of us through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, on his last night of life, he gathered his friends the people who would betray him and abandon him and deny him. And in their presence, he held up elements like these. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do you believe that? And this is my blood which is shed for you. Do you believe that? Every time we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that we, as believers, are made one with Christ and one with one another. This is one of the reasons that we are constantly trying to remind you that the Lord's Supper is not primarily about your own individual experience, about you personally experiencing God's grace individually in this moment, but that we together come to the table as the one body of Christ, people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and different socioeconomic statuses and educational opportunities, people of different sized families, all coming together, one body in Christ. Friends, when we have this in mind, and because of our obedience to His commands, we are constantly rendering to God at the Lord's table thanks for His never-ending providence in our lives, His continual mercy to us, His love for all people and that He sustains us and does not swallow us up now. His special grace for believers and that He has specially revealed Himself to us in the words of Scripture. That He is the Savior. That He is our Savior. That He has forgiven His people. That He has forgiven us by the power of the cross and the Holy Spirit and has now given us hope of everlasting life. Friends, we cannot approach the Lord's table rightly and celebrate as we should when we come to the Lord's table. It's not a time to just feel bad for Jesus. It is a time to celebrate what God has done, what he did to Jesus and will never do to us because of our hope in Jesus. He will not crush us for our iniquities. He will not put us to death forever. He will raise us from the dead. We celebrate We remember the dignity of this table. Friends, I call upon all of us this morning, everyone in this church, to examine themselves. God is testing as we prepare ourselves for this table. Hear again the familiar words of the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Discipline is not just for bad people. It's for God's people. So that we might not be condemned along with the world. Friends, the benefit is great. If with repentant hearts and faith we approach the table. But just as the benefit is great, so the danger is great. Judge yourselves lest you be judged. I just want to pause again for a moment for us to reflect. Everyone stay in their seats, even the musicians, and pause for a moment and reflect and examine yourself before we come to the table. Friends, examine your lives and your conduct by the rule of God's commandment this morning that you might perceive if what you've done in this life has offended a good and holy God. And if you've left anything undone, any word or thought or deed, anything unrepented of, right now is that moment to acknowledge your sins before Almighty God with complete and full intent on amending your life being ready to make restitution for everything that you have done against another person, being ready to forgive those who have offended you. Hear the word of the Lord Jesus. If you forgive others their trespasses, not have they forgiven you of your trespasses. If you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Are you harboring unforgiveness in your heart this morning? Or bitterness toward another person in this room? Or perhaps they're not here today. Brothers and sisters, the most godly thing that you can do in this moment is not come to the table, but go and make it right, whether that's while we're singing or abstaining today and go and finding them. And forgive. If you need to ask for forgiveness, Jesus tells you that you must. And then, being reconciled with one another, come to the table as you confess your sins that you might receive the benefit of forgiveness. Because if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We say that verse so much, I worry as a pastor that some of you will become too familiar with it. I know that some of you are struggling with sin. And I know that the battle has been long and hard. And I know that you long to hate it. But believer, if you are fighting and you are struggling and you are warring against it, you can come to this table with confidence. Jesus always meets his people with mercy when they repent. Every single time. You want to believe at times that you have sinned yourself out of the grace of God because it might be easier to think, I don't have to deal with it anymore. Or perhaps someone has lied to you and said that you have sinned your way out of the grace of God. That is false and untrue. You cannot sin yourself beyond the grace of a good and merciful God who has promised us that if we approach Him in Christ, He will forgive us. And it is as repentant that we come to this table. Brothers and sisters, if you have repented and believed in the gospel, if you have been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that we preach, we invite you to come to this table today and to celebrate with us. 
If you did not grab one of the communion kits, I believe that they are at the Connection Center. Is that correct, Mike? They're at the table where the programs are. You can get up and go get one after I pray in a moment while we're singing the first song. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this good gospel, this good news to us, sinful people though we are, you have condescended to not only dwell among us in the incarnation, but you have been abundantly gracious with us, not treating us as our sins deserve, as the song that we love to sing as a congregation says, your mercy is more. God, we pray today as we come to this table, Lord, that you might remind us that it is a proclamation to us, telling us what you have done for us in Christ, what you will never do again because you did it to our Lord Christ instead of us, and what we have to look forward to on the final day when we sit with you around your table and feast as inheritors of eternal covenant promises as victors because of our belief in Jesus Christ as those who are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself up for us. God, we pray that as we come weary today that this table would be a reminder to us that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, perhaps as we've treated other people. That instead of treating us as our sins deserve and casting us out, you have invited us to yourself. You have welcomed us to yourself. You have not alienated us from yourself. You have forgiven us of our many sins time and time and time and time and time again. And by your grace and for your glory, you will continue to do so as your spirit helps us put them all to death as we long for the day when we are made perfect and new. So now we're going to sing, Father, with confidence. We're going to sing loud and with confidence because we trust that Jesus Christ, your Son, is our Savior, and He is merciful and the mighty friend of sinners. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.